Well, good morning. It's great to see you all. If you're a guest, you're so very welcome. My name's James. I lead the team here today. It's uh, uh, with well, not just today, but other days as well. Uh, it's uh, it's a real privilege to um, to open God's Word together. It's been a wonderful time already in the presence of God. It's going to continue as we uh, continue our Psalm series. We're in this series, Psalms. Uh, teach us to pray. I just want to say thank you for everyone who is praying um, every single day. Thank you. I want to encourage you to keep praying. Don't give up now. We're going to keep praying throughout this whole series. Uh, if you want to get involved with praying on a daily basis, newcom.church forward slash pray. You can get the details there. Uh, and uh, we'd love you to, to join with us as we really do seek God's face, as we really do seek to align ourselves with His will as we really want to be a people who increasingly pray in accordance with his will. Because as we do, the promise of God is he will answer us. And he will grant us those things that we pray for when we ask in accordance with his will. And so this whole series is really looking at what does it mean to pray in accordance with the will of God. And if you uh, missed the, the last couple of weeks, I just want to encourage you, particularly week one, to, uh, to have a listen to that. You can find it online. Um, because Psalms really are the authorized, if you like, words of God. They're words from God for us to speak back to God. And I just want to uh, recommend real quick a, a book by a pastor in the States, Tim Keller. Uh, he's written it with his wife, Kathy. It's called My Rock and My Refuge. It's a year of daily devotions in the Psalms. Um, it's real simple. That's like the psalm and then there's some stuff there, all right, about it. It just helps you get a, an understanding. You don't necessarily need to do it on a daily calendar thing. It's in order. It starts at Psalm 1 and works its way through to Psalm 150, so you can just dip in whenever you want. You can get a copy of this today if you want to from Melinda, who will be at the back at the end, or you can go online. You won't beat online prices with us today because we bought it from the cheapest place and we'll sell you it at the same price. So if you want to get one of these, uh, you can pick up. I really honestly recommend this book for you, Tim Keller. My Rock, My Refuge, uh, really grappling with the Psalms, outstanding book. Frankly, anything written by this dude, but that book particularly is great. We're going to be in Psalm 87 today. Let's get straight to it. Uh, I think this is my favorite Psalm. We all have a favorite. I think this is mine. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selah, which we don't really know what it means, but it means some kind of pause to reflect on the glory of what we've just heard. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said. This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there, Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Favorite? What are you talking about? Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Psalms of David. This is now handling, this is a different psalm. This is not a psalm of David. You'll see in the title there, this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. It's a song. And part of the reason why this is one of my favorite psalms is that it is a psalm of Korah. 
as sons of Korah. And that just shows us immediately something of how God operates. You see, Korah was, uh, well, the sons of Korah, they came from a notorious family. Korah was not actually their dad. He was a distant ancestor. But they carried his, his family name and they carried his reputation. Now, Korah had a notorious reputation because of what he did in the, uh, in, in the book of Numbers. He was, Korah was the cousin of Moses and Aaron. And he was notorious because they were the, the leaders appointed by God. And Korah rebelled against them. He rebelled against God. And he rebelled against God's leaders. And God judged him severely. Numbers 16, verses 32 through 35, it says, The Lord caused the ground to open, and Korah and all his family went down to their graves alive. Literally, the ground opened and swallowed them alive. And verse 35 says, the Fire came out from the Lord and killed another 250. And before the end of the chapter, 14,700 more of them have died in a plague. Gotta love the Old Testament. But actually, you've got to really recognize that sin is deadly serious. Rebelling against God is deadly serious. And God always does something about it. And praise him, praise Jesus, that ultimately God poured out the punishment we deserved upon Jesus. And the reason why I love this psalm, and I love the fact that Korah, the sons of Korah's psalms are included, is because Korah and his family were swallowed alive. They were dead. But in Numbers 26 verse 11, Moses simply wrote, the sons of Korah did not die. Their line didn't die out. Now we're not told how, whether they were pulled back out of the grave or whether some of them were stood at the side and missed the edge. We don't know how or why. But what we do know is they were the ones who lived when they should have died. They were redeemed from death. They're just like us. Those who should have died and yet live through the wonder and the power and the mercy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who are recipients of grace, they deserve one thing, but they received another thing. Those who have received the mercy of God, they're just like us. I love how God operates. They have, like we have been, have been written into the story of God. They did nothing to deserve it. They deserve death and yet God graciously granted them life. And more than that, their names are now written into this whole story of the word of God. Oh, I just love how God works. That's you and I. Written into a story that we do not deserve to be written into. Deserving not of mercy and grace, but recipients of it nonetheless. The second reason I love this psalm is because it's a picture of where we're heading as a people. And it's an encouragement to us for where we're at right now. See, God has written us into his story. And these just seven little verses from Psalm 87 encapsulate really the whole of the story in seven verses. The whole of the Old Testament story. And they point us to Jesus in the New Testament. And they point us beyond the New Testament to the end of time, to the new heavens and the new earth. It's our story in a slightly complex nutshell. So we're going to explore this psalm together. We're going to get stirred by it. And ultimately, it's my heart's desire that we would be a people who pray this and pray it earnestly and pray it into being. 
And to do that, you're going to have to have your brains in gear for a few moments as we're going to explain some stuff. Because to understand truly this psalm, and if you're one of those people who has a tendency to zone out and then zone back in again to, to the funny moments, there are no funny moments coming up, all right? It's kind of full-on work from here on in, all right? I'm going to go slowly-ish, and I'm going to help us go through. And all the different verses are going to appear on the screen. But it's a moment. If we can get hold of this and understand it, it's going to unlock so much for us. And it's going to just help us get our heads around so much of the Old Testament, actually, and frankly, so much of the New Testament. Because we're going to explore what we mean by Zion today. So, you know, you read like in Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 23, where it says, but you, now it's New Testament, so we kind of figure this must be about us. But you have come to Mount Zion... And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled enthroned in heaven, we somehow get that it must be about us. It's probably about the church. Somehow. Must be. It's New Testament. It must be something to do with me because of Jesus. But we're not entirely sure. Or we don't exactly know what it means. Well, we're going to explore this stuff today. Back to Psalm 87 for a moment, verse 1. On the holy mount, or the holy hill, if you remember back to Psalm 2, we talked a lot about the hill of the Lord's anointed one being appointed on it. On the holy hill stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. So what is Zion? What does it mean? Well, to understand what it means, we need to go back to the very first time it's used in the Old Testament. And the very first time Zion appears in the Bible is in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now David at this point has just been anointed as the king of Israel. And verse 6 of 2 Samuel 5 says, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who said to David, you will not be coming here. Nevertheless, verse 7, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. It's the first time Zion's mentioned in the Bible. So Zion is the city of David. Zion's the city of David. Now flick over, if you've got your Bible there, it will come on the screen. If not, don't worry, to 2 Samuel 6, because this is what makes it significant. Zion is the city of David, but this is what makes it significant. Verse 12, David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And if you've got your Bible open, it's in verse 14 that he starts dancing in his pants. All right, So it's a big celebratory moment. The Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, was the most sacred place on all of earth. It was the Holy of Holies where God met his people in the tabernacle, in the tent of his dwelling place. So basically, the Ark of the Covenant was the dwelling place of God on earth. So Zion now has become the center of worship. Zion is the place on earth of God's presence. So God lives in the highest of heaven, but his feet touch the earth. He also dwells on the earth. And where God dwells in the Old Testament is in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, in the tent, in the dwelling place of God, which is now Zion. So when we read Zion, Old Testament, it's the center of worship. It's the place of God's presence. Now, fast forward a little bit in the story to 1 Kings chapter 8. David's son is now a king on the throne. That's Solomon. So Solomon is now the king, and he's built a temple in Jerusalem. 
Up until this point, God has dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant, that they've carried it around. That they've carried the presence of God around. The Holy of Holies, they've carried it. Now Solomon as king has built a temple. And in verse 1 of 1 Kings 8, we're told that Solomon brings the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And he brings it into the temple. He brings it into a permanent place. So now, this is important. The whole of Jerusalem is now known as Zion. So Zion is the place, the presence of God, the center of worship. It's now no longer being moved around. It's in a permanent place in Jerusalem. And it's important to understand that Jerusalem now became known as Zion because the Old Testament now uses that phrase Zion to refer to Jerusalem about 150 times. And it's not just another name for the city. It's not like they just interchange, we go Jerusalem, Zion, we'll mix it up a little bit. No, it's because principally, and this is really crucial to understand, Jerusalem is now the city of God's presence and therefore the city of great hope for God's people. So Jerusalem, Zion is the place where God dwells. It's the place that is really, really very important. It's the place of great hope because God is there. So Psalm 9 Verse 11 instructs us to sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. It's where God dwells. So in the Old Testament, Zion is the place on earth where God has chosen to make his presence especially known. God is present and he's near his people. But Zion was also the place where people could come and get help and get deliverance. So back to Psalm 3 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. I, verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. That's Zion. Psalm 20 verse 2 says, May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Now let's just pause for a moment and just catch our breath. Because the Lord dwells in Zion, the city of God, it was a place of his presence And it was a place of help and deliverance for all who needed it. Now, you've got to lodge that thought and hold it. That's what Zion is, a place of the presence of God and a place where people can come to receive help and deliverance should they need it. That's what Zion was always supposed to be in God's plan. But we know the story of the Old Testament, right? We know the story of God. We know the story of God's people more accurately. That They're told to do one thing, and when they do it, it goes really well. But more often than not, they don't do it. And they mess up again and again and again. And if you think the Bible is full of heroes, you're very much mistaken. There's one big hero, his name's Jesus. The rest of them pretty much mess it up. Even the best of them, like David, messes it up royally on very many occasions. So all of them, everything is pointing us towards Jesus ultimately. Now Zion was supposed to be this significant place. The place of the presence of God where people came to have support, but help and deliverance. But... Sin affected everything. Every time the people of God were disobedient, bad things happened. And even Zion became affected by it. So Lamentations, a book to read on a nice summer's day when you're feeling cheery. Chapter 2 of Lamentations, verse 15 says, All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of all the earth. It's in disarray. It's no longer what it once was. It's no longer the place it was supposed to be. 
And so as we track through the story, it becomes more and more obvious that Zion, the city of David, the earthly Jerusalem, was not the perfect ideal city that it was supposed to be. And so all the prophets, the major ones and the minor ones, the minor ones are those 12 with all the slightly odd names. You think, what is this about? All of the prophets increasingly began to understand that Jerusalem was not what it was supposed to be and to understand that Jerusalem in the Old Testament was actually pointing to a future Zion. It was actually pointing to a heavenly Zion. It was actually pointing towards this, this future moment. A heavenly Zion where God dwells and rules with perfect reign. And a future Zion on earth where God rules all over the nations. And so Isaiah prophesies this. Isaiah in Isaiah 2, verse 2 and 3 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Lord and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this now is where we come to Psalm 87. Because all of Old Testament Zion is pointing to a future Zion. It's pointing to a perfect Zion. It's saying this isn't what we thought it was, but one day it will be. One day we'll see it fully. And this is where we come to Psalm 87. What does it mean for us to pray Psalm 87? How do we understand it? Well, the first thing we've got to understand is that Zion is not in the Middle East. All right? In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was a place. You can find it on a map. You can still find it today. You can still go there today. It's an actual physical place. But today, when we talk of Jerusalem, when we talk of Zion, we're not talking about traveling to the Middle East. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to the Middle East and going and checking it out. Wonderful if you get the opportunity to. But if it was all about traveling there, it would make Christianity a religion of the privileged few. Only those who can afford it can get there. But it's very much not. You see, what made Jerusalem back significant back then was that was where the temple was, the place on earth where God dwelt. But that temple was destroyed in AD 70. It's not there anymore. And Jerusalem now is just a place. In fact, Galatians 4 verse 25 calls it a place of spiritual slavery. Throughout Israel's history, there's this growing realization that the physical Jerusalem was really just a foreshadow pointing towards something else that was going to be revealed later. Who do you think it's pointing towards? Where do you think it's going to be revealed? Jesus. That something was Jesus. You see, Zion in Old Testament terms was the place where the presence of God was on earth. Same thing as the temple. The one place where human beings could meet God without being burnt alive. But just over 2,000 years ago, Jesus arrives and announces, Matthew 12, verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. John 1, 14, he tells us, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That phrase, dwelt among us, literally translates as tabernacled amongst us. His presence is now amongst us. And in John 2, verses 19 to 20, Jesus speaks of his body as the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? 
They don't understand what he's talking about because they think he's talking about the physical temple. They're like, mate, you're nuts. It's taken us 46 years. No one can do it in three days. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All that Jerusalem symbolized is found in Jesus. He's the place where we meet with God. He is the place where God's king rules on earth. He's the place where we are secure. He's the place where we can find help and deliverance. So where is Jesus found on earth? Where his people gather. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So the place where God dwells by his spirit is now not in a temple, a physical temple, is in the people of God. We today, if you're a believer here in Jesus Christ today, if you're a Christian here today, we are God's temple. And when the New Testament talks in this way, the overwhelming reference to being us being the temple of God is of a corporate nature. So yes, the only time, in 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says individually we are, being, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. But more often than not, the majority of the time in the New Testament, when it talks about the temple of the Holy Spirit, being a, it's a corporate thing. It's about us. It's about the people of God. It's about the church. So 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they they shall be my people. Ephesians 2 describes the church as being built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. It says Jesus is the cornerstone. And then verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Just in case we haven't got it, 1 Peter 2 verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A corporate thing about the people of God who this side of the cross is now the church. So the local church of which we are one of them by the spirit of God is now a partial fulfillment of Jerusalem. We are a local and real expression and a foretaste of what is to come. We're here pointing over there. And what we're pointing to is a heavenly Jerusalem. You see, one day the real and final and the perfect Jerusalem will come down from heaven to earth. Revelation 21, verse 1 to 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Wow. So when we read Zion or Jerusalem in a new covenant context of which we're in, this side of the cross, we understand that it is focused on Jesus. It's experienced partially in the local church now and will one day be fully and finally experienced in the new creation, in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the perfect dwelling place. So we're both a foretaste and a prophetic statement of what is to come.
That is where we're heading. And right now, we experience in, in miniature, if you like, kind of not in a perfect way because we are imperfect people and we can't do it perfectly, but we experience a small version of what one day we will experience fully. This is why we're supposed to be excited and and full of wonder and full of hope whenever we talk about Zion and the church because we're now a place of the presence of God and we're now a place where help and deliverance can be sought from people who need it. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. New to this church and think, oh, it's pretty good so far. Stick around. You'll work it out. But we right now in miniature are a foretaste of what one day will fully come. So let's just unpack this for a few moments from Psalm 87 because this is about us. It's about us now and it's about one day where we are going to be heading. And it's important thing to grasp this is that this psalm, it tells us in the title, it was a song. This psalm was first sung when the assembly of God, the people of God, was not visibly glorious. It didn't look good when they first sang this. When they first sung this song, the people of God had been exiled in captivity. There was nothing seemingly going right. None of the stuff that they were singing here, they could visibly see with their own eyes. All the promises of God seemed to be failing or sinking Nothing seemed to be working. What they were singing of was not reflected in what they were seeing. And then the Holy Spirit inspires a song or a prayer that promises a better future ahead. And they sang it in faith, believing that one day they will fully see it. We need to learn to do the same. We see it in part. We don't yet see it fully. Their confidence as they sang this song, as they prayed this prayer, and ours as we sing it and as we pray it, is not in ourselves and what we can see. It's in God and what he's doing, which we can't always see. Verse one, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. It's the city he founded, God founded. You know, this this city is very secure. The physical city of Jerusalem is very insecure, but this is not about that. This points to another city that is completely safe, the city of God, the church. The foundation upon which we are built is not ourselves, not our bright ideas, not our good thoughts, not our good strategic plans, but on God himself, the eternal, immutable, which means he's unable to change, the invincible God. He founded the church by his power and it stands firm. Nothing can shake it. It's standed firm for 2,000 years. It will stand firm until Jesus returns. It will march triumphant into all of eternity, not because of us, but because of him. We can have real confidence today that nothing is gonna shake the church. Nothing is gonna rock the church. Nothing is gonna destroy the church because it is founded and built upon and sustained by the glorious power of the glorious God who is and was and is to come. Nothing shakes him. Nothing takes him by surprise. We can have real confidence in the church because of the one it is founded on. And nothing will shake it because the foundations on it rest in the covenant love of God. Look at verse two. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. He loves Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. You know your Old Testament, God loved Jacob, says it, Jacob I loved. He says in Malachi 1.3 and in, uh, in Romans 9, he says, Jacob I loved. He loves Jacob best. He loves the church bester. 
He loves the church better. Jacob I loved, but whoa, Zion is better. He delights in the people of God. He delights in the people of God. He looks on the great of everything and goes, yeah, all good, but the people of God is whom my delight is in. We've already been reminded of it this morning. He sings over us. Zephaniah 3:16. He rejoices over us with singing. Wow. It's the church where the Lord reveals what, what and who he loves the most. What a joy it is to be part of the church of God. What a joy it is to be part of the people of God, to be part of a local expression of it where God himself, the all-powerful, mighty one, delights in us and sings over us. We're a people loved from all eternity by the electing and unbreakable love of the Father. And verse 3 tells us the glorious things of you, glorious things of us, are spoken, O city of God. Glorious things. And the psalmist pauses, Selah. To sing the glories of the church. Wow. Glorious things. I did all right my GCSEs. I did. No. Glorious things are spoken over us. And it's always us. It's not me. It's us. The corporate people of God together. And the true glory of Zion of the church will be its king. And this is the bit I absolutely love. The true glory of the church will be its king and the stunning makeup, the stunning diversity of its citizens. Look at verse four. Among those who know me, I mention, and the psalmist begins to list representatives of the Gentile world. Wow. No longer just the Jews, now for Gentiles, from people from all sorts of different tribes and tongue, but also not just Gentiles, people who are the enemies of God. Look here. Rahab, that's not the prostitute Rahab. Rahab was a, a name, the monster of the deep, like a nickname they had for a real enemy. And the people of God, Israel, referred to, uh, they gave that nickname to Egypt. So this is about ancient Egypt, who was a monster of an enemy. So Egypt, Rahab, Egypt, this enemy of the people of God, this enemy of God is now included. Babylon. We know about Babylon. Babylon was the great power and the persecutor of Israel. They were the, the, the nation that took the people of God, the Israelites, into captivity. They get included here. Philistia, that was, they were an ancient enemy, the Philistines. Remember David and Goliath? He was one of those irritants, a large irritant, but he was from the enemy of Philistia. They were an enemy of God. Tyre was a, an affluent neighbor full of idols on the edge of the promised land. Cush was this far remote off place. It was a place called Nubia, kind of Sudan, sort of Ethiopia, sort of modern day equivalent. These people, these nations were not just Gentiles, they were enemies of God. They were old foes, enemies, hated. Now they've been born new. Now they have become friends. Now they have become worshippers of the one true God. Even far off places like Ethiopia, none are too far off to receive the salvation of the Lord. And they're now enrolled here as citizens of Zion. Not just citizens, but brothers and sisters. They're now being included into the family. And verse 5 makes it clear that it's not just nations, but individuals from those nations. And of Zion it shall be read, this one and that one were born in her. These people had their natural birth, wherever they were from, from whatever nation it was, 
And by nature, they were enemies of God. And yet God gives them new spiritual birth, gives them new birth. This is what Paul means in Galatians 4, 26, where he says, we belong to Jerusalem above and she's our mother because we're born again into a new family. We're born again into a new and living hope. And verse five says, for the most high himself will establish her. That's the only establishment worth having right there. Being established by the most high. So what a stunning picture this is because whoever you are, whatever your background, however far off from God, however distant you think, however much an enemy you recognize yourself to be of God, there is a place for you and an invitation to come. This is the gospel at work. Enemies of God drawn near by the blood of Jesus and it's all a work of the grace of God. Nothing you did to earn it, nothing you did to deserve it. The enemies of God were that, enemies. It wasn't, well, one day they started behaving a bit better and God said, okay, you can come in. No, they were enemies of God and he brings them into his family. Verse six, the Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there, Selah. It's just this another pause. Just, pic, just picture that scene. The psalmist just encourages us in this moment just to reflect on the incredible nature of the church. This amazing, stunning picture here is of the sovereign God sitting in eternal wisdom and glory at his desk with his big book of life in front of him, writing your name in it. That's the picture. That's the picture. Whatever your background, whatever your past, whatever your nation, whatever your whatever, whatever you know, the eternal sovereign, this is the image here, in all glory, in all wisdom, with his big fat book, writing your name in, in the book of life. Before eternity, before time began, he wrote your name in the book of life. Everyone who repents and puts their trust in Jesus becomes part of the glory of Zion. This is an encouragement for us of where we're at right now because this is exactly what is happening here, right here, right now in this place. Men and women from every different nation, every different background, from all sorts of socioeconomic, educational, racial, whatever backgrounds, those who were once enemies of God now been brought close. This is Ephesians 2 in practice. Verse 12, remember that you were at the same time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Skip over to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. It is literally impossible to express in words just how stunning this is. Like there's just no, there's no... From there to here, through nothing I have done. And here we have in Psalm 87, hundreds of years before Jesus, this prophetic picture painted of what is to come. That one day we will be with him and we will be with all of the others whom he calls his own. Multitudes, multitudes from every tribe and every tongue. 
And hundreds of years before Jesus even comes, Psalm 87, we get this prophetic picture of it. And then Jesus comes. And then following Pentecost, Act 2, the picture begins to be painted in color. And it begins to take shape. Men and women speaking different languages from different cultures, from different social classes, from all colors and all creeds begin to get citizenship in the church of God. And what a glorious church it is. We sometimes struggle to see it. Because people like you and people like me are involved in it. And we mess up and we make mistakes and we do all sorts of stupid things and we say stupid things and we act in a way that's completely inappropriate to our nature now in Christ. And sometimes we look in the pages of Scripture and we long for that. We just don't quite fully see it. But this is what we're part of and this is where we're going and one day we will fully see it. Revelation 7 After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is where we're going. This is where we're heading. This is where one day we will be. We today are a prophetic statement of what is to come. And when you see it, verse 7, Psalm 87, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs, all my fountains are in you because it's a city of joy. See, the church is not just a place of security and comfort. It is. But it's also a place of joy. We were once enemies of God. We were at once at war with one another. Now we are brothers and sisters with a citizenship that is not earthly. We have a future set before us, one that is so glorious that no eye has seen or no mind could conceive just how incredibly stunning it's going to be. So yes, we may have troubles in this world, but Jesus says, take heart because I have overcome the world and he's invited us to now come and taste and see that he is good and we can know his goodness now and we can eagerly anticipate what goodness and joy is awaiting for us when we one day arrive on eternity sure and so we are to be now a people who even though sometimes we don't yet see it and even though sometimes it does not look like it's supposed to look and even though sometimes it is messed up and and little bit busted and a little bit frayed around the edges and a little bit and a little bit and a little bit more really even though It's all of those things. Let us delight in this psalm and the truth it contains. Allow it to stir in us the pure devotion that the Lord is looking for for the church. Christ's bride for the glory of Jesus. You know, you can't say, hey, I love Jesus, but I ain't so keen on his bride. That don't work. Someone says to me, James, I love you. I ain't so sure on on your wife. They're going to get punched in the mouth. It's not okay. I don't even care if, no, we won't go there. love Jesus we love the church because Jesus loves the church he bled and died for the church he sacrificed his life for the church he gave himself for the church the Lord delights in Zion the church the people of God so what are we praying for when we pray Psalm 87 what are we praying this week as we pray through this psalm that we would increasingly be a picture of what one day we will be perfectly that yes, we might be frayed around the edges and yes, we might get some things wrong and yes, we might not yet perfectly represent what we should, but one day we will and we're gonna pray it into being. We're praying that enemies of God would find salvation here. Like if God can save you, he can save anyone. And if you think, well, I kind of think maybe I should, 
well, God could obviously save me. You haven't yet understood the depravity of who you once were before God broke in. And if you're here on the outside thinking, I'm not sure if God can save me. Yes, he can. There's an invitation right now. Come to Jesus. You get added into this. We're praying that enemies of God would find salvation. We're praying that we would truly become the diverse community that we dream of. Couldn't care less about political correctness. Don't give a monkeys about any of that kind of stuff. Would love to say something stronger than the word monkeys, but it's inappropriate in church. Don't care. Count it all as rubbish, Paul says. And because Bible translators are chickens, they put rubbish rather than the real word. Count it all as rubbish. I don't care about it. I care about this where we're heading. That one day we will gather around the throne of God. And what we are right now is a picture of what's to come. And so we're going to give ourselves to it. And we're going to pray, dream in prayer together to what one day we might be. That we would really also become a place of God's special presence among his people. A place of help and deliverance for all who need it. And that we would be a people of joy who demonstrate that our joy is not based on the circumstances we find ourselves in, but in the eternal victory that Jesus has won for us. And that we would increasingly be a fulfillment of this psalm. It's a song we can sing. It's a prayer we can pray. Even when, especially when we're discouraged by the church. Because in these verses, we have the promises of a great glory to be revealed. Let's give ourselves to it.